0: iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store.
1: Titanic was called the ship of dreams. And it was it's really was. Alright, open your eyes.
2: We go full ahead! Put your backs into it!
1: Got everything I need right here with me. I figure life's a gift and I don't intend on tendon, wasting it. You never know what hand you're gonna get dealt next you learn to take life as it comes at you.
2: When the ship docks, I'm getting off with you. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this evening's guest moderator, Scott Foundish from the Film Society of Lincoln Center, and tonight's guest, James Cameron.
1: Well, it's, it's a pleasure to share the stage uh, with somebody who I think is... Uh, both one of the great uh, technological innovators in movies, but also one of the great storytellers and uh, <laughs> I, I pay him twenty bucks, he always comes to my thing, and we settle up afterwards. So actually, maybe we can talk a little bit i 'm hoping about both the technology of Titanic and the storytelling of Titanic and a logical place to start with the 3D reissue of the film in theaters right now seems to be to talk a little bit about that process of uh, converting the film, what compelled you to do it, and what was involved in doing it?
0: Well, let me start with what's involved. I think I think there's this sort of misconception, and you guys are probably too hip for this, but there's this misconception out there that there's some kind of killer app. You feed a 2D movie in one side, and a 3D movie gets spit out the other side. But it's not. It's, 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 it's human-in-the-loop, labor-intensive artists sitting at screens. Yeah, they're using... They're using software and there's a lot of fairly sophisticated tools they use, but it's still about human perception, looking at these flat two-dimensional images and trying to figure out you know, what the 3D should be, what the depth should be. So it's unbelievably labor-intensive and it's very subjective. So uh, it requires, I think, the filmmaker to be a part of the process to say, no, that's too much 3D, that's too little. I don't feel the depth is right here, and kind of guide them through it in the same way that you'd guide, you know, the mix or, or the scoring or you know, color correction or anything else. Um, so it's going to get into an, an interesting ethical area. Wouldn't we all love to see The Godfather, for example, or we were just talking about Heaven's Gate or whatever whatever your favorite big epic movies are. Wouldn't wouldn't you love to see those in 3D? But what happens if the filmmaker's not around? Should we do Lawrence of Arabia? And who would do that? Who would take that responsibility on to speak for the the filmmaker? It's going to get into a tricky tricky zone. I f- I feel comfortable with Titanic cuz I was I was, you know, there doing doing the process, and 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 as to why, um, well, first of all, I love 3D, you know, that's kind of a given, and um, you know, the, um, I had wanted to do Titanic for a long time, but it really, you know, the exciting part of it for me is to bring Titanic back to movie theaters. And I know you, know you know people people are watching movies on progressively smaller screens. It seems these days, and and uh, you know you don't as a as a filmmaker get a chance really to get a second you know a second chance uh, to put your movie in, in theaters to see it reborn in in, in, uh, in the cinema, and so that's exciting in and of itself. You know, the film looks better than it looked in 97 because we did did a 4K digital remaster. We tweaked the color, took all the grain out, sharpened it up. It looks like it was shot in 65 millimeter. It looks better than it did then, and that's just if you're seeing it in 2D. And
1: then the 3D is obviously a heightened and enhanced experience beyond that. Well, you've been one of the big proselytizers of the 3D revolution, and I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit about what in 3D technology today do you think is lasting in a way that the previous waves of 3D movies in the 50s and 60s and in the 80s sort of uh, died out and went away for decades before they came back? Why won't that happen today?
0: Well, you had a brief flirtation with 3D in the in the early 50s, you know, starting with Buona Devil, and then there were 25 titles in 18 months, believe it or not. Everybody trying to cash in on the novelty factor and it was purely the novelty of the stereoscopic illusion in a theater it wasn't you know they were pretty much mostly b titles and it wasn't really embraced by by serious filmmakers and there were serious limitations on the technology at the time because it was film based and film based 3d just doesn't work for a, for a lot of reasons so you know uh, and then there was another you know kind of tiny tiny resurgence in the 80s only a handful of titles um you know i think earl owensby did half of them you know (laughs) rottweiler in 3d but uh sorry earl i didn't mean to throw you under the bus buddy but um but um you know and then uh, then digital technology came along and and you know when i made titanic in in 96 97 i didn't really dream that there would ever be a kind of a 3D renaissance in cinemas on a, on a mass scale. I was thinking that it was, you know, IMAX platform, 50 theaters worldwide, that sort of thing. And if you were making a 3D film, it was for a very, very kind of niche uh, platform, which IMAX was at that, at that time. Um, and I started exploring 3D for documentaries about the ocean, things like that. And then it just, it just kind of exploded. Uh, in the the early part of the the last decade that the technology with the cameras really changed rapidly and digital technology made it possible to do things that you could never do film-based and then it was really digital projection that made it possible. And the breakthrough, of course, was when they came up with a single projector system, which the first one was the Real-D system. And that's the moment where the light bulb really went on for me that this could be the next big thing. And that was in about 2002,
1: 2003, somewhere in there. Shifting a little bit to talk about the story of the film, um, can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the research that you did into the history of the Titanic when you were starting to write the script and how you decided what your focus was gonna be, who the characters were gonna be? I mean, it seems like it's a sort of vast almost infinite uh, number of approaches that you could take to telling the story of Titanic and obviously there were earlier films that took different approaches how did you happen on your story?
0: Well the the inspiration to do a film about Titanic came from uh, literally two things happened within within two days for me. One, I watched Night to Remember. And I got this feeling that it would make a great film, and with, all, and with the finding of the wreck and the new technology, the the ROVs, all the stuff that I had used in The Abyss, and this was, this was right after, uh, this was in 91 or 92, so right after Terminator 2, so The Abyss was still fresh in my mind. But the ROVs and the submersibles and all that stuff that had been used to explore the wreck, uh, I thought, wow, you could you could retell this story with with contemporary cinematic tools and visual effects and so on, and wrap it in a in a uh, uh, in a modern uh, wraparound, uh, you know, just as a narrative device, and that'd be really cool. And I, I really like the idea of exploring the Titanic wreck, but uh, that then the interesting thing was I watched Night to Remember. Uh, I remember thinking, wow, let's, I should I should. Like remake Night to Remember, you know, that was my first thought. I walked down the hall, went into my kitchen, was sorting my mail. This was back in the in the old days when it was snail mail. And I pulled out an invitation to a screening of a film about Titanic. It was literally just a black card with rivets on it. I thought, this is too weird. So I went, and it was actually a screening of a film a friend of mine had made, Al, Al Giddings, an underwater photographer, about... The expedition he had just gone out on to do a Titanic, uh, a, a Titanic um, IMAX film. It was called Titanica, made by, by Stephen Lowe. And, but the making of showed how they had used the Russian subs to dive to Titanic. And that's really when the light bulb went on. I, not only should I make a movie about it, but I can really dive to the Titanic wreck. So I was in at that point. So I, I called my friend Al Giddings and I said, I've got to go to Russia. I've got to meet these guys. We've got to talk to them about the subs. I hadn't even thought what the story would be yeah. yet uh, other than the kind of wraparound convention. But the penny didn't really drop until I thought Romeo and Juliet. You know, when I, when I literally sat down to try to write a story, it's like, well, what's my, what's my way through this? You know, why, how am I going to care about all these people in 1912? I've got to have some kind of doorway or portal for entry emotionally for, for the audience, and that's a love story. And I couldn't sort of contort the reality of the people, the survivors, you know, the stories that were known to be that kind of love story. So it had to be a fictional story that played out in the foreground of this kind of pageant of yeah. the real event.
1: Talk a little bit about the character of the mother and this idea of the the... the the, the, the very wealthy people on Titanic, uh, who are on top of the ship, and the the lower class people that are down in the on, in the hold.
0: Right. Well, obviously Ruth, the mom, is is trying to cling to her her status. Um, and, of course, status was so critically important at that time in 1912. And, you know, what, what's interesting is how resonant Titanic is now with, yeah. the, you know, with the top 1% and, and, and how we see very starkly in this, in this recession time uh, the division between the haves and the have-nots, which the film is very much about. And I think that, you know, there's an interesting thing about this film that, the media sort of simplified the success of the movie to, oh, it was 14-year-old girls wanting to go and see Leonardo DiCaprio. And, and you know, I'm sort of willing to accept that that was a factor. Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you $400 million of, of, of gross for that factor, okay? You still got to account for the other $1.4 billion. And so there's more going on, and I think that young, I think women in general and young women specifically, they were, I think, of course, interested in Leo, but I think they were also interested in Rose because Rose represented something. She she spoke for them, and that that thing that that women go through when they have to fight against the expectations of family and society to become individuals and 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 uh, to to be their you know kind of their inner self, which Rose succeeds in, in doing as, as a result of all these, you know, traumatic things, but really because of of having met a guy who recognized her for who she was and gave her confidence. So you see the straight jacket that she's in and it's quite literally represented by the, the corset. The funny thing is I wrote it where Rose was doing up the mother's corset, which sounds like, duh, so obvious that it should be this way. It made sense to me the other way because the mother was of a very straight-laced generation and and was but but when I flipped, I literally that morning got up, was having breakfast, and thought, you know, I think I, should, I think I should turn that around. I think the mother should be putting the corset on, on uh, on Rose, and of course it makes the scene. It it just because the the physical action of the scene so perfectly underlies the dialogue.
1: Well, and of course I have to ask you this is not the only movie of yours that has a very strong uh, female character at its center, which is something kind of unusual in the action-adventure and fantasy and science fiction genres that you've specialized in. I mean, we have Sigourney Weaver in Aliens, we have Linda Hamilton in the Terminator movies, Zoe Saldana in Avatar, and Jamie Lee Curtis in True Lies. Can you talk a little bit about this sort of through line your attraction to these very strong willed and strong minded women I I just I just like
0: Women and like writing female <laughs> characters, you know I mean, I just think it's really it in- I mean as a man, you know you spend your whole life trying to figure out how how women work and how they think, you know, and so writing it and trying to project myself into that into their worldview, I think is first of all it's a challenge. I like challenges, you know, um, and uh, you know I, I think it's very it's very revelatory it it it, uh, uh, it, it helps helps me understand the, you know, what women are struggling against in the world and so on. I think these strong characters is like, yeah, Linda Hamilton picks up a shotgun and blows away the occasional you know, T-1000, but that's not why she's strong you know she's strong because she's internally strong and that's it's funny watching hollywood mess this up over and over because because the women are either kind of secondary to the hero the girlfriend the wife you know the 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 love object you know the sexy chick or or whatever or they make them central but they make them these kind of comic book Amazon characters that don't have the vulnerability and the complexity, and, and there's no sense of reality to them, you know. So women can't get behind them because they're not they're not real enough. Uh, and I think the trick it doesn't matter how wild a fantasy you're doing, like Terminator, uh, you know, which which is the one of the most improbable stories ever, but. <laughs> You know, Sarah's character was very believable. She was very relatable. And I think that's the critical thing, is to to see that, to show strength in a plausible way where people have to find it. They have to summon it from from somewhere. Um, and Because uh, that's what we're all faced with in life. You know, we've, we've, we, we know we've got that inner
1: strength somewhere. It's just sometimes hard to find. Now, you've, in the 15 years since Titanic, done a fair amount of additional research into titanic uh first there was the documentary ghosts of the abyss wonderful uh, 3d imax documentary and then um your national geographic special that was just on
0: well, it's been a really interesting journey and, and the epiphany to it really only came uh just a few weeks ago when we when we did uh, our, our you know kind of forensic round table that the documentary is uh, was based on i guess it was actually a couple months ago at this point um you know, we, we, I, 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 we did an expedition in 2001, another one in 2005, and I was able to fly a robotic vehicle through the corridors and stairwells and rooms of Titanic. And from that video survey, we were able to look at the damage and how the damage was progressively greater on, up, on higher decks as the water rushed in faster and faster. So we were able to actually create some benchmarks for the flooding and and we started to think a lot about well which portholes were open and there was a there was a, a big gangway door on the on the port side that was left open and and we pieced together some of the testimony and we realized that door probably was opened it didn't open when the ship hit the bottom it was actually opened as part of the evacuation and left open and it would have accelerated the 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 sinking and and, and so we started to feed all that data into a computer model that was actually uh created uh at the the US uh, uh, Navy Academy by a guy named Commander Stetler and, and a, a whole bunch of the midshipmen and some of his, his officers in training worked on this computer model. And it turned out not only was it the most complex and detailed computer model ever created of the Titanic, it's the most complex and detailed progressive flooding study ever done of any ship, ever. And in this model, they were able to run simulations and see how the Titanic would have flooded and how it would have tilted and ultimately broken up. And they found out something really interesting. No matter how they changed the initial conditions minutely, staying within the boundaries of what was known, the ship always tipped over. The ship always capsized, or or almost capsized, what they call lolling, where it tipped over about 45 degrees. Sometimes it went to port, sometimes it went to starboard. But it never sat upright. But we know historically the Titanic sank almost perfectly upright, and that's what allowed all the people to get off. It's well known that Titanic didn't have enough lifeboats for everybody on board. But what people don't think about is every single lifeboat they had, they were able to launch. And the last two boats actually floated off the ship. They didn't have time to get any more into the water. Having more boats wouldn't have saved more people. The people that were saved were saved because the boats were able to be launched down the vertical sides that were like a skyscraper of the ship. If it had tipped over, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And so the only thing that we can conclude from that is that, the, is that the guys down in the engineering spaces were running the pumps, madly trimming the ship by pumping water back and forth from one side to the other in the, in the trim tanks and the water holding tanks and so on. None of those guys survived. They all stayed on board to the last seconds and never made it to any of the boats or got off the ship. So we'll never know the answer for sure. But there's a very strong indication from this long study and analysis that the true heroes of the night we're not the, you know, second officer light or the hero of A Night to Remember, uh, but, but these guys, these, these engineers down in, the, down in the lower spaces, you know, keeping that ship upright, just sort of balancing it on, a, on the edge of a dime so that they could get all those boats launched. And that's a revelation to me. I'd, I'd studied Titanic for 15 years, and it never occurred to me. Every one of the major shipwrecks that we, that we hear about, the Andrea Doria rolled over, the Costa Concordia rolled over, Bismarck rolled over. They all do because of free surface effect. They don't just sink straight down, but of course that's what happened to Titanic. So either it was the most amazing miracle in history, or there's, there's a, a human story behind it that was teased out
1: by analyzing the data. I'm going to turn it over at this point to the audience and take some questions from them. There's a microphone going around, I think. So maybe we'll... Uh... We'll start right here in front on the on the right here. Uh, so um, at at this
2: point uh, in your career, you're probably uh, afforded uh, more control uh, technically and uh, creatively over your works than uh, probably anyone else in the industry. And um, you're also you're known as a perfectionist and, and liking to control uh, your products uh, from the beginning to you know the end, you know every part of the process. And so um, I'm wondering, what, uh, what role do you let serendipity and, you know, and uh, limitation play in the making of your films at this point in your career? Because we hear a lot about happy accidents and, you know, also about movies like, you know, uh, you know heaven, uh, yeah, Heaven's Gate, where, you know, it was total control and turned out terribly um, from a box office
0: standpoint. Well, <laughs> some would argue with that, but... Uh... No, I think that's a fair I think that's a fair question. I mean total control doesn't necessarily yield a better a better movie. Um and uh you know, I, I mean <laughs> Let's talk, I mean, I could, I could spend a while talking about the idea of control. You still have partners. You still have to be responsible to the people that are writing the, writing the check for the film. And so it's still a collaboration. But r- the real collaboration is, is with, the, with the actors and with the other artists that, that feed into the creative process. And I always believe every day when I go to the set, I leave the door open for lightning to strike. And I think that the real art of making a film is recognizing that. That's why I don't overly storyboard my scenes in advance. I like a scene to have life. I like it to breathe. I like to hear what the actors uh, uh, want, have to say about where they should be standing, how it should be, be played out. So uh, you know, I think it's about, it's about letting the magic happen, and recognizing it when it when it happens, and not feeling like you do have to control everything because a movie doesn 't spring fully formed from the forehead of you know in, in some in some way that you know back when I was a you know studying film, I thought those guys like Hitchcock and Kubrick and those guys they knew everything every shot every you know every lens flare it 's not like that at all the the real art of, of filmmaking is letting it is letting it flow, letting it have a natural life, and being smart enough and not threatened enough to be able to run with what other people bring to it. That's the key to it. You're really just conducting the orchestra. You know, The soloists still have to play. They still have to play beautifully and richly. And that's, that's what filmmaking's all about. Stage left, to your left. Third
1: row, to your left. Um, my question is uh, there are actually three uh, questions I have but you can answer it all at once did you put it in theaters to uh, make more money or was it to uh, experience the movie and your audience could experience it in 3D or the fact that it would mark 100 years since the Titanic sunk this month
0: well I think you know I think you know the answer I mean look I think you always have to it's, it's a I'm going to, The most provocative part of the question, obviously, is the first one. Um, I'm not thinking about the money, but I have to think about the money for the studio when I go to them and say, guys, it's going to cost you $18 million and maybe 40 to $50 million to promote. It's going to cost you $18 million to convert it. I have to make a business case that this is a good idea. I mean, they like me at Fox and at Paramount. You know, I've made a lot of money for those guys. They'd probably go along with it even if they thought they were going to break even. But I had to make a business case that this was a good idea. And at the time that I made that business case, there wasn't Lion King and there wasn't Star Wars ahead of it, demonstrating that that it was going to be commercially viable. It was, in fact, I started talking about this in in 2004 when there weren't even that many 3D theaters and nobody even knew if 3D was going to was going to take off. So there was a long process of having to having to build that build that case. And as of right now, I still don't know if we're going to make make money. That's really not the point. The point for me as a filmmaker is to see the movie back in, in theaters, on the big screen, where it belongs. I mean, people have, you know, there's a whole generation of people that think they know Titanic. They've watched it on, on video. They haven't seen it yet. You haven't seen it until you've seen it in a theater. That's the way I look at it. That's the movie that I made. You know, To me, video is a necessary part of the process. But to me, it's like, it's like when a movie dies, it goes to hell. And hell is video. <laughs>
1: Second row center.
2: Hello, Mr. Cameron. My name is Gary Watson. I traveled 100 miles one way here, and I've got to go 100 miles back.
0: I just want to say I you I traveled had, farther.
2: I know. I'm, on,
0: <laughs> I'm still on and, Guam and, time. And, and,
2: and you're worth it. And you're worth it. I, I just want to say that um, in partnership with Apple and, and, and the uniqueness of your ability to be the icon filmmaker of our time, you are our Alfred Hitchcock of today. You are. And I just want to say on record... Don't put and,
0: that on me, baby. That's no, too no, much no, pressure. No,
2: no, you You earned, you earned it, sir. And, and I want to say that I believe, in all honesty, there's a lot of people who might share the same opinion with me. I believe the Academy Awards do get it right, but I think when they went up against your pitcher and put Foot Locker over Avatar, they got it wrong. And I just want to let you know there's a lot of people well, thanks. today...
0: but that's not a question.
2: Well, <laughs> it's an question, opinion. Yeah, well, I just want to say. Well, to what's you, your question? My question is: Do you find it a, a greater challenge when you are directing actors of the caliber, or rather younger actors like Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet, or do you find it easier, in your experience, directing people of the caliber of Arnold Schwarzenegger or some of the more elite VIP actors that you've met over the years as worked for you in your productions? Thank you, well, I mean, I
0: think you're talking about the difference between between up-and-coming actors and stars. You know, Arnold's a star, uh, Sigourney's a star. You know, I was involved with them early on in their in their rise to stardom, so I, you know, there's a familiarity there. You know, I, I mean, I haven't really ever sought out to work with like superstars. It, to me, it's more interesting to work with people that I think are really talented and really right for the for the characters. And Leo and Kate. Both went on to stardom, and uh, I think that that was that was very evident even before we cast them in in Titanic that they were on that trajectory. so I got to work with them sort of before that had happened and uh, all I can say about that experience is it was a joy to work with two young actors that were that gifted, and the beauty of it for me as a director was that they each You know, sometimes you work with two actors in a scene, and one will peek out on on take three, and the other one's just getting warmed up on take eight, and it's really hard to to cut a scene together afterwards. They both got progressively better on every take, and you know, I mean, I don't like to do like a crazy number of takes, like 20 takes, but I'm perfectly comfortable doing eight or nine or 10 takes of a of a shot. And I was always rewarded by going again with them because they were able to just constantly build on what they had done, you know, earlier in the in the shooting. And you know that was it was a, we were beautifully matched to each other, the three of us, because of that.
1: We've got the last question far left in the back. Last question. Oh, way over there. Wow, James Cameron.
2: Uh, quick question. You are a s- part of a small percentage that has gone to one of the deepest parts of the earth. What's the biggest thing you took from that experience or th- that,
0: those experiences? I never thought of it as a percentage. What is three as a percentage of seven billion? It's low. Um, what, Very small. I mean, first of all, I think that that when you go to such an extreme place, and I, I can only liken it to you know, standing on the moon. It's as far from human experience as you could possibly be on this planet and still be on this planet. And, you know, it's such an extreme environment where the pressure is so intense that it could, you know, crush a titanium sphere. And yet life still adapts and, and survives there. And I saw these little amphipod creatures You know, swimming around uh, in the in the water around the sub, and so you're sort of struck by the adaptiveness and resourcefulness of nature to to uh, allow life to. I don't want to say flourish because this was a bleak place. It's not like there were there were all there were 50 different kinds of strange creatures swimming around. It was a very stark and and barren place. But uh, you know, I. I felt just so privileged to get an opportunity to look with my own eyes at a, at a place that no human being has ever seen and may never see again. There's not a lot of money to do research in the deep oceans, and I'm sure uh, if people do go back, they'll go back to different places so they can get you know a, a broader base of samples. They wouldn't go back to that exact place again. Just like I didn't go back to the place they dove in 1960 when the with the Navy project, you know, the the bathyscaphe Trieste and f- Interestingly, just as a side note to that, that one of the two uh, men that dove on that historic dive in 1960 was actually on my ship uh, with us on the expedition. Don Wall. She's the only survivor of the two of the of the the two pilots, and he was the first person that greeted me and shook my hand when I when I came out of the sub back on deck. So that was that was really neat to close the loop and and have our expedition project honoring those pioneers
1: back then. James Cameron, filmmaker, adventurer, and, as we learned today, the Alfred Hitchcock of his times. Thanks for uh, journeying from the center of the earth to be with us here today.
0: Thanks, Scott. Thanks a lot. Thank you again. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much to James Cameron, and thank you to everyone for your patience today. Have the best weekend ever.